Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Is whether or not Canada is being too generous to illegal border crossers. That's been a huge issue talked about across uh, this country, dealt with in media, dealt with in at the, at the dinner table in uh, homes across this country. It is a specific and uh, and growing issue. And many people are pointing to the uh, tweet by Prime Minister Trudeau in January. To those fleeing persecution, terror, and war, Canadians will welcome you, regardless of your faith. Diversity is our strength. Welcome to Canada. There are people pointing at that tweet and saying that's been the reason that there's been this increase in the numbers of people coming across the border illegally. There's also the issue of uh, what is in a name and the calls to remove Sir John A. Macdonald's name from schools. What are Canadians nationally saying about that? Shaki Curl is the vice president of Angus Reid, and she joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Always a pleasure to speak with you, Shaki. Always nice to be here, Roy. So let's start with the, uh, is Canada being too generous to illegal border crossers? What is the most uh, significant response that you've heard? How, how, do you, how do you encapsulate what you've heard from Canadians? So... What we see here is a sense that the policy that this government, the approach that this country is taking towards folks who are crossing the border through illegal channels is one that is too generous, uh, is a sentiment that's being expressed uh, nine to one over those in this country who say that it's not generous enough. So, you know, numbers can sometimes be tricky. Some people would look at these results and say, well, just over half, that means the other half are fine with it, and, you know, we're a country that's kind of evenly divided on the issue. Um, What I always like to look at is the intensity of feeling, right? Not just what the feeling is, but how intense it is. And so, yes, we have about half, just over half in this country who say that uh, the approach that Canada is taking towards people who are crossing the border illegally is too generous. Um, you've got about a third who say, well, actually, we're striking the right balance. We're we're hitting the right note here. A lot of people say they don't know. But what I note is, again, the number of people saying too generous versus not generous enough is 9 to 1. So that indicates to me um, a strength of feeling on this issue that really exists. And the big driver of opinion here, Roy, is politics and its generational differences. Younger Canadians those who are a little more left-leaning, if they voted for the Liberals or the NDP in the last election, more inclined to say, we're getting it right. Uh, Older Canadians and those who tended to vote uh, for the Conservative Party in 2015, much more likely to be saying we're being too generous. So do we have a polarized country or one polarized country in, in the process of being formed? Well, we have a country that's starting to express some anxiety about the approach 
really, and kind of the the, the results really of of the, the statements that we're making, and maybe even some of the values that we hold. And what do I mean by that? Well, look, no political party, no political leader in this country, we're not the United States, uh, has a view that immigration is bad. Uh, no political party has a view that uh, we should be doing nothing for people who are fleeing persecution and war and terrible things overseas. Um, even our right of center is pretty moderately right compared to some of the right-wing parties around the world. But I think what's happening across the political spectrum is that people are starting to increasingly feel a little bit uneasy, not about helping those, not about opening our country to to people who uh, need to come here in order uh, to have their lives saved or to flee um, really certain death, but about the number who are sort of coming in with the mix, right? You had 7,000 people cross the border irregularly in Quebec over the summer, and Canadians are saying, we have some worries. We've polled on this issue. We have some worries about who they are. Are they genuine refugees who are certain to go to jail or worse if they're returned to their home countries? Or are these people who are also um, coming for economic opportunity? Because opportunities in their own country are not great, which is fine, but then you've got to apply through the legal and the regular channels. Or are these people who are actually um, trying to escape a criminal past and using an asylum claim to kind of wipe the slate clean. Yeah, a lot of factors. Case, are, they bought, are they bad hombres? A lot right? of factors at play. Mm-hmm. Um, when I uh, when I look at the uh, at the numbers, and I'm still I'm still stuck on this fifty three percent. I'm not quite sure. Explain to me how it's nine out of ten. I see fifty three percent on your poll. Well, I didn't say it was nine out of ten, Roy. I, what I said was that the ratio of the number of people who say that it's too generous. That's mm-hmm. nine times as high as those who say it's not generous enough. So about 53% in this country say it's too generous. About 6% say mm-hmm. it's not generous enough. Okay. All right. So we have uh, the reality that is going on, that people are coming across the border. We also then have people, and I've had many emails, and even when I was on vacation, people were sending me emails saying, why do we have the safe third border, safe third uh, country uh, agreement with the United States, which disallows refugee shopping? There's no point for having that particular agreement if the only place that it applies is at staffed border crossings. If it can be essentially just ignored anywhere else and people can come across, yes, they'll get arrested. Be nominally, they'll be, they'll be arrested. Then there'll be uh, an investigation, and, and on and on it goes. There are people who will be called forward to... Uh, most of them will have to appear before an immigration uh, refugee board hearing. And if they're deemed uh, to be uh, not legally in this country, not appropriately in Canada, they'll be told to get out. But then there's all the appeals process that can go on, and that can go on for years. So there's, a, there's confusion and there's, there's frustration. And that's why I'm, I'm asking you whether you have a sense that it's becoming a, polarized, whether it's a left-right issue more than a an issue of hues and shades. It is. It has always been a left-right issue. Insofar as the further you are along the left side of the spectrum, the more likely somebody is going to say we should adopt the most compassionate, liberal, open policies available. The further you are to the right of the spectrum, the more likely you are to say the focus should be security first. 
uh, and people second. That has not changed. Is that attitude growing stronger? I would suggest to you that what you're seeing is is a shift really across uh, all parts of the spectrum. And what I mean by that and what stood out to me in this study is that people who have voted for the Liberals in the last election much more likely to say that they're they're fine with the way government is handling this and mm-hmm. they're fine with the approach, but a significant number of them are starting to express some concerns. A okay. significant number say our approach is too generous. And in fact, what really stands out, what jumped off the page for me, Roy, was that more past NDP voters are of the opinion that our policy is too generous than liberal voters. So there are big pockets of people across the political spectrum who are worried about what's happening and who are starting to really trying to to wrestle this issue of uh, accepting and truly, sincerely, genuinely believing that, yes, Canada is a welcoming country. Yes, they believe that diversity is our strength. They believe all those things. They want Canada to be a welcoming and diverse country. They don't necessarily want thousands of people crossing the border. All right. Let me, t- let me take a quick break. There's another factor about this particular poll. I'm going to talk to you about John, Sir John A. Macdonald. But the other aspect of this poll that I've jumped out at me was that one out of five doesn't have an opinion. Right? One out of five doesn't have an opinion. That's a significant number. It is. It's a significant number. Much larger than I would have thought. Well, I think they're wrestling with these issues. I think they're wrestling with a sense of, uh, you know, who who are we really? But if you're wrestling with an an issue, you may still have an opinion. That may be. Let me take a break. 19% were unwilling to express that. That's a big number. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML question of what's in a name, the call to remove Sir John A. Macdonald's name from schools, which was uh, brought forward by the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. Shaki, we have about two minutes. Put this into perspective for us, please. Are we talking again about a divide across the country that is uh, perhaps uh, according to age and political affiliation? Yeah, big drivers again on this issue, uh, Roy. Uh, age plays a really big part here. Um, political affiliation, well, look, Johnny McDonald, uh, he was a conservative prime minister, and so you do see past conservative voters sort of rallying around their guy, but you see a lot of you know people who would never vote for the conservatives also rallying around the idea that uh, his name should stay on schools and should not be removed and and a very very strong sense an overwhelming sense of agreement almost unprecedented nearly 90% saying uh a person's entire life and principal legacy that they leave behind should be what determines uh whether or not uh, they are uh memorialized and honored on on the back end of a school or or in a statue or on a plaque or in that way you also see by the way Roy uh, a desire to see, um, you know, maybe more controversial historical figures, if you want to use that word, or, or people whose legacies may be more mixed or debatable in the light of day, uh, to to be held in schools or museums or places where there can be conversations around context, right, and sort of talk about both sides of it. But certainly in terms of the idea of who's more accepting 
of uh, stripping the name of, of John A. McDonald uh, from from public schools, as the, uh, that that teachers union in Ontario has has suggested, definitely younger people across the political spectrum, but but certainly on the left side, are more inclined to say, yeah, this is this is an okay idea. Older Canadians, uh, those who are more center and center right, are really not okay with it. By the way, this this crosses ethnic and immigrant divides, um, people have a very strong sense of history in this country. And I think that when it comes to McDonald, as opposed to someone like Henri-Louis Langevin or, uh, or Cornwallis, um, they're much more prepared to, to, to fight uh, McDonald's corner than some of the others who, who have faced the same criticism. All right. Shaki, always good talking to you. My pleasure. Thanks for the time. Chucky Curl. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Have a listen to this, please. Hi, Roy. Please read this. My dad suffers with chronic pain from a work-related injury. He can't work and is trying to get his doctor to understand his dilemma. He's having the same issues with pain and agony. About two months ago, I caught him drinking and driving and he managed to get some pot and says between the two he can manage. But he's now driving high and drunk, and all because he can't get medication from the doctor and absolutely refuses to just lie around and not function. So now not only is he being looked at as a criminal, he's being pushed into behaving like one. I can't be there all the time, so I can't control his behavior. I'm scared now for what can happen when more and more people use this solution. Thank you. And that, of course, has to do with the issue of chronic pain patients. And we've been talking about and to and for chronic pain patients for months on this program. We've spoken with the past Federal Minister of Health, Jane Philpott, who provided us with essentially no answers to the questions that I asked. We've spoken to patients. We've spoken to patient advocates. We've spoken to doctors, both in Canada and the United States. And on and on it goes. And the problem is this. Chronic pain patients who are living in agony are having their medications, their opioid medications, withdrawn either entirely or dramatically because doctors are afraid. I used the word terrified yesterday when I spoke with Dr. Jason or Professor Jason Bussa, the editor of the 2017 Canadian Guideline for Opioids for Non-Chronic Cancer Pain. Doctors have been expressing fear that they'll have their licenses revoked if they prescribe the kinds or the amounts of opioid meds they've been prescribing to their patients, which for these patients has returned some quality of life because the amount that the doctor's prescribing doesn't meet what is considered to be uh, guideline maximum. Now, we also heard Professor Busa, and unfortunately we have some technical issues, so I can't play this back for you, But the professor told us yesterday that no doctor in this country, no doctor in this country should be cutting patients off opioids. No no doctor in this country should be dramatically withholding opioids from patients, medication, if if it's required. There should be consultation between the doctor and the patient, and no doctor should be just dramatically withholding or removing opioids from a patient's uh, care regimen. So, I want to introduce you to four people who are going to be with us for the balance of the hour. And they all have 
experience with this issue, significant experience with this issue. Dawn Ray Downton is a freelance journalist. She's a chronic pain patient. She's from Nova Scotia. We've spoken with Dawn on quite a few occasions for 12 years. She has been on fentanyl to provide her the assistance so she can live her life. And she's been terrified about what may happen if her opioids are withdrawn. And she's been on the air with her husband, Bob. And she talked about having a suicide plan. And if those medications are withdrawn, Don Ray has told us, she will end her life. But she'll do so in a manner that her husband is not held in any suspicion. How would you like to go through life that way? Hi, Don Ray. Good to speak with you again. Hillary Morton is an entrepreneur. She's a criminologist. She's at Simon Fraser University. She's a former, and I, I guess once an athlete, always an athlete, but she's <laughs> struggling struggling with, with, uh, with chronic pain, which has had you at times, Hillary, on, uh, on the edge thinking about suicide. And, and you're also dealing with this, this issue of the doctors not wanting to prescribe what it is you've been receiving and what you require in order to live your life. It's good to talk to you again. Yes, you as well. And Marvin Ross is a health writer. He uh, writes for the Huffington Post, dot, uh, Huffington Post Canada, and uh, for other publications. He's in Ontario, and recently he's been writing on the issue of chronic pain and the lack of care that is being... Uh, Marvin, would it be fair to say the lack of care that's being dictated by those who have the, uh, the power to do so? Most definitely. And uh, Barry Ulmer is the executive director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada. He joins us from Alberta. Barry, just in a, in a few words, what is it that you do as an association? Well, we're a patient group, uh, Roy, and uh, we try to get information out there and uh, try to uh, impress upon the fact of, for the regulatory bodies and the politicians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that chronic pain is a pretty serious thing and it has some severe consequences for people who suffer from it and they're just not being looked after. All right, let me go to Don Ray because you two months ago sent a list of questions to Professor Boussa in your twin roles as a journalist and as a chronic pain patient. And uh, I believe that you, you received an answer. First of all, let me ask you, I'll ask each of you to, to, to answer this question as well as you answer the first question I ask you. What was the sense that you had from the conversation I had with Professor Busa yesterday? What did you get out of it? And then, Don Ray, talk to us, please, about the 38 questions you asked the professor and what happened after that. Sure, Roy. I heard Jason Busa's interview with you yesterday, and uh, I... He, he sounds like he always does. Um, he takes no responsibility for what has happened in Canada. Um, he, there is no accountability on the part of the steering committee of the guideline, which started the draconian uh, tapering of patients, of chronic pain patients across Canada. And you will note that what he, what he said to you was kind of scripted. Uh, he's, he's been scripting it in the 38 questions uh, that I had answered finally yesterday after two months. So, I mean, I was not surprised by it, unless, of course, you consider that Jason Bussa and his steering committee at McMaster have known for some time that there are incredibly bad problems that have started with this guideline. And, uh, you know, I guess I have to ask myself why they're just letting themselves um, 
be targets of people who are in chronic pain without answering by going to the medical colleges and saying, this is not what we told you to do. You have to stop this. You're hurting people. So I'm surprised in the sense that he hasn't started to do that. He says he's concerned. He says he's not responsible. I mean, it's kind of a little like um, being, um, being a pilot and saying, I didn't drop the H-bomb. The plane did. Yeah. Were you satisfied with the questions, uh, the answers that he gave to your questions? Oh, Roy, of course I was not satisfied, but it's kind of what I expected to see. Um, what jumps out at me is kind of two trends. Um, the first that I've already talked about was that there's a lack of accountability from him. Um, you know, he scripts his answers to in, in the two questions that I asked that had to do with uh, the reign of terror that's been visited upon doctors and chronic pain patients in Canada. He said basically the same thing. He said, we continue to work to ensure that the guideline recommendations are appropriately interpreted and implemented. That's what he says every time that he's asked. Well, clearly that's not happening, uh, Hillary Morton. That's not happening because patients yeah. like you are finding that you're not getting your, uh, or you're having difficulty getting the medications that you require, the opioid meds that you require to have some quality of life. And yet Professor Busse insists that no doctor in this country should be arbitrarily withholding or cutting a patient off opioids. Yeah, that that's the official line. And as I was saying to you yesterday, the BC College has revised their policy, and it does talk about, you know, an appropriate withdrawal of 10% every week, which is far too rapid for anybody who's been on the meds for a, a significant period of time. Um, it doubles down, again, on the, the number of people who are misusing their meds at 26%, which is laughable. I, I've done a lot of research, and that doesn't even come close. It's 0.7 to 6% across the board, no matter what. Um, and while they may have changed the language in the policy, de facto it does the same thing. Doctors are being threatened, and patients are losing their medications. It's that simple. And now, I don't know um, if it's happening in other provinces, but certainly if you go to a critical care facility or a walk-in clinic, they have it right on their door now. We don't prescribe, and then there's this list of medications, and it's all the opioids, all the narcotics. You know, you could, I guess you could walk in with your arm chopped off, and they wouldn't give you pain control. I don't know. Does it's this crazy. Does this put you in a position of constant fear? It, I think it puts everybody in the position of constant fear. And as I said last time when I talked to you, what we're going to see is a huge jump in overdoses from street uh, drugs. And that's exactly what we've seen. In Vancouver, we're looking to see an increase of um, up to 50 to 70 percent estimated for the year of 17, uh, 20, sorry, 2017 over 2016, and we're seeing a change in who is overdosing. We're not seeing as many street overdoses. Those are very, very stable at about three to 400. That increase of what they estimate to be 1,000 are people like me. They're college students. They're employed, and they're dying at home alone because they're going to the street for their medications, which is what I said they were going to do. They have done it in every Every state in the United States, we're doing it here now, and unless you've got a person-to-person -person prescription coming from doctor to pharmacist to someone you know to you, 
you're buying on the street what you hope is oxyneo, and you're getting fentanyl or something else. And All right, I'm going to take. People are dying alone. I have to take a break. We're going to come back and speak with uh, Marvin Ross and Barry Ulmer and. Uh, Don Ray and Hillary are going to stay with us. We're on this issue for the hour because we're responding to what Professor Jason Busset said yesterday, the uh, editor of the guidelines. Now, the professor contacted me initially to let me know there'd been a study done in Hamilton where it was shown that it was illicit drugs, so illicit drugs that were responsible for, more responsible for, opioid overdoses than prescriptions. And prescriptions are either down or stable in Hamilton, so it's the illicit drugs that are the problem, more of the problem, more significantly the problem, and I suggested to the professor yesterday during the program that if they did a study like that in any municipality or any urban region in this country, they'd come up with exactly the same statistics. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Barry, what the hell's going on in Alberta? You sent me an email, and it uh, frankly, it scared me. What's going on? You know, I'd really like to know, but it is. It's scary. Like, uh, we've had in Alberta a case of uh, the uh, regulatory body stepping in and going to doctors and actually telling them they cannot see patients anymore, certain patients, period, that those patients were now going to be taken over by somebody else who doesn't have a clue of what's going on. And, in fact, the doctor that's uh, been seeing these people has been seeing them for years and can't even see them for a cold anymore. In Calgary, one morning a doctor came to his office and he found the Calgary City Police there with a subpoena along with Alberta Health Services to uh, take the the, uh, files of three of his patients and then uh, went on to accuse those patients of basically being uh, drug dealers, which is absolutely nonsense. But it's... But it scares me, Roy, and it scares everybody who's suffering from this condition. So let's, let's replay that. Barry, let's replay that. RCMP officers. Calgary City Police. Calgary, Calgary Police. They, they go to the doctor's office, and what did they do? They had a subpoena uh, uh, that uh, they got names from Alberta Health Services, and the subpoena listed three, three patients of this doctor's, and they, they right. seized all the files of those three patients. Yeah. And then accused them basically of being drug dealers, basically, which is nonsense. And what came out of that accusation? Anything? I haven't heard anything more about it, so it's kind of uh, been off the radar, I suppose. But uh, I think we probably will in the near future. And uh, the the college, so the college is also interfering with doctors as far as treating their patients is concerned, and they're taking some patients away from doctors. Well, without a doubt, and they they forced them. They forced them into into taking them off their medications, and it's not tapering. It's it's going down. Uh, one of the patients uh, was dealing with one of the representatives from the college. She was forcing him off his medication, then she just disappeared. Uh, he didn't know where she was, so he was in real dire straits, and he still is. His life has totally changed as well as, as the others, and uh, it's just a horrendous problem. And, uh, Do you hear the word suicide from people? Without a doubt, every day. Every day. Marvin Ross, who writes uh, on health matters for HuffPost Canada, and uh, this is all really frightening stuff. I mean, I know most of it. Some of it I'm finding out today. Uh, Marvin, it's it's not getting better. It's it's getting worse. And and yet yesterday, Professor Busa said, and you heard him, he said no doctor should be removing a patient from uh, opioid prescription medications arbitrarily, and they should only be tapered if 
the patient is in agreement. Yeah, and actually, um, I had asked uh, Professor Busa in an email why McMaster did not talk to the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario about this, because quite clearly this is coming from the regulatory body, which is the, uh, the body that regulates doctors in each province. And his reply to me was, I'm not a member of CPSO. Well, of course he's not a member of CPSO. He's not an MD. He's a chiropractor. But regardless, he's the chair of the guideline committee, and we hear from all sorts of people that their doctors are telling them that they're under great pressure from the regulatory body so that the the authors of the guidelines should be talking to the regulatory bodies. We have about a, roughly a million and a half or maybe more chronic pain patients in this country. I would venture not one of them, not one of them who requires medication, is living comfortably these days. They're living in fear, and they're living in really serious fear. And I could, I could spend three hours now just reading you emails that would make you cry. Frankly, they would make you cry. I'm going to take a break, and then we'll come back with our guest. We'll talk more about what's going on in response to Professor Jason Busa being on this program yesterday. Barry Elmer's the executive director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada. He joins us from Alberta. Marvin Ross, health writer uh, for HuffPost Canada. He's in Ontario. Don Ray Downton, freelance journalist, chronic pain patient. She's in Nova Scotia. Hilary Morden is an entrepreneur. She's a criminologist. She's a chronic pain patient. She's at Simon Fraser University working toward her Ph.D., and there's a lot more to be said about what's going on. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Think you can swim with the sharks? Talk with Mr. Great White himself, Roy Green. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. So clearly we have a significant problem with communication, or we're having a significant problem with the truth, or both. Because on the one hand, we're being told by the chair and the editor of the 2017 Canadian Guideline for Opioids for Chronic Not Cancer Pair, Pain, rather, is that no doctor should be withholding opioid medication that the patient, his or her patient, requires, that has been prescribed unless that doctor is working with a patient who is in agreement. But the patient, from what I gathered, from what I heard, and I've heard it time and again, should have the final say. That's not what's happening. Patients are being, and you've heard the emails, and you've heard them on this program, the patients, they're having their opioid medications taken away, withheld, withdrawn, and they're terrified. And they're talking suicide. And a prominent physician, in an email to me, wrote that doctors who are in pain management, involved in pain management, are increasingly talking among themselves about an increase in suicides among their patients. 
This is a huge issue in this country, and it's not getting the attention that it deserves. Or if it's getting attention, it's being misdirected, largely. What's happening with generic drug addicts on the streets is being transferred to chronic pain patients who have nothing to do with what's going on on street corners unless they're forced onto street corners because their prescription medications are being withheld. Now, one of my guests is Barry Ulmer. You just heard Barry, the executive director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada. When I spoke with Professor Jason Boucher, the chair and the editor of the 2017 Canadian Guideline for Opioids for Chronic Non-Cancer Pain, when I spoke with him, I brought up the issue of Mr. Ulmer and his Chronic Pain Association. Just have a listen to just about a minute of that conversation with Professor Busa about Barry Ulmer's association. Listen. I'm going to be speaking tomorrow with Barry Ulmer, the executive director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada. Mr. Ulmer's association was also asked for its input into the guidelines. But from what I now understand, while the Chronic Pain Association of Canada provided input you asked for, their input was not included in the guideline. Is that so? And if so, why? Uh, no, we, we did receive uh, the, uh, the comments from, uh, from his group as well as comments from over 500 other groups. Uh, these were all considered, synthesized, they were discussed with the steering committee, uh, and we, we certainly did consider all that information we received uh, in the final version of the guideline. Did you include anything from the Chronic Pain Association's recommendations? Uh, I, I, we, I'm going to have to go back to that specific letter. I, I recall that we reviewed it, but we reviewed so much material that I can't tell you off the top of my head what aspects of it. But we, we did feel that the final guidelines addressed the concerns. I can't tell you if there were particular components that we inserted into the guideline uh, based on that one letter. All right, Barry Elmer, why don't you respond to that? Well, I can't uh, think of anything offhand that they included in it, but I... I guess the key word in this whole thing, Roy, is they considered. In the United States, when the CDC came out with their guidelines, they also considered. But when they actually finalized and published them, there was very little consideration given to anything that some pretty uh, intelligent people in the, in the pain field had, had come up with and, and given to them. So they requested information from you or input from you, from your association. You provide it, and there's nothing in the guidelines from what you provided, fair. Nothing, nothing specifically that I could, that, that I can see, Roy. Okay. No. Uh, in fact, one of the things I'd said in in that uh, um, uh, correspondence was is about the recommend recommendations, and I basically said to label a recommendation as a strong recommendation based on moderate quality evidence from observational studies is unscientific, unprofessional, unethical, and quite frankly, should be un inconceivable to any legitimate scientific panel. And these guys are so disingenuous, Roy, that they keep coming up with all of this stuff and, and it's created nothing but problems. Instead okay. of chasing doctors and pain patients, yeah. why don't they look at the real problem? Well, I used the word unscientific as well in my conversation with Professor Boucher. He didn't seem to agree with me either. All right, let me say, now we really need to just hear from, from you as a group or individually what you feel needs to be said, because I know you're sitting there thinking about, we've got to talk about this, we have to mention this, this has to get out this hour. Don Ray, you lead off, please. Sure, Roy. Um, I was really struck by the email that you read at the top of the hour um, about the, um, the man whose father is uh, replacing his pain meds, which have been taken from him, with alcohol and driving around looking for street dealers. 
what I always think about when I hear these dreadful stories, after I, you know, stop being choked up by them, is that Bussett and his group have said many times, including to me, that what they were hoping for in doing the guideline is better patient outcomes. So I'm wondering if uh, the man who wrote to you about his dad, is he experiencing a better patient outcome by drinking and driving and looking for street dealers? Am I experiencing a better patient outcome when I am basically on death row because I never know when my pain physician might be censured and have his prescribing uh, uh, privileges taken away? Is that a better patient outcome? I also think that the guideline is highly unscientific, even though there were supposed to be two epidemiologists on the steering committee. But but what I see coming back from Jason Busa when he answers my questions two months later is that a lot of his own subjective evaluations of things went into it. For example, he uh, was the one who evaluated whether he himself had an ideological conflict of interest in participating on the steering committee. It's kind of like asking the fox not only to count the, the, the chickens in the hen house, but you know, to, to evaluate whether he's a good um, a counter of chickens in the hen house. I think we would all agree that this is unscientific, and yet there are many, many uh, examples that I could point to where, where preferences and values, as, as Professor Bussa likes to put it, are relied on in some cases and ignored in other cases. For example, he said that the reason that cancer patients are excluded from these draconian guidelines, this is a question that's always interested me and nobody can respond to it, he said that they exempted cancer patients because they thought they felt, he said, they felt, is that scientific? They felt that cancer patients would have different preferences and values. Well, the, fa- the fact is that they're also cutting cancer patients off or not allowing cancer patients to have the amounts of opioids that they require because they're afraid they become addicts. And that, 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 that in the United States, I've been told, has been extended to children. Yes, that is the case. And I think that what, what Professor Bussa would say is, once again, I'm the pilot and I didn't drop the H-bomb, the plane did. The plane did it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't um, think he, he takes he he doesn't take any responsibility for what's happening. When I asked him who or what is responsible for the attack on Canada's pain patients over the last years, what role has the guideline played? He said, "This is beyond my knowledge." I asked myself, "Why was it beyond his knowledge? Why isn't he interested in finding well, out?" The more he started with the guideline, why doesn't he follow up? The more we're speaking today, the more I need to ask that question again. Why did they, in fact, even need or even write these 2017 guidelines? Because all they've done is cause, it seems, cause confusion and pain. Now, when it comes to conflict of interest, Marvin Ross, you wrote about that as well. Well, um, no, what I noted was that, um, and I don't recall if it was on the answers he gave to Don Ray or to you, uh, he did say that... um, uh, Dr. Urolink had a a negative opinion to begin with of opioids, um, but that he wasn't a voting member. But if you look at the guidelines, the final decision of what goes into those guidelines 
was made by the four people on the steering committee. And Dr. Yearlink was one of those and four. And Yearlink was one of them. Busey was the other one. Uh, and two other physicians. Um, so regardless of what information they got from practicing pain physicians, they made the final decisions. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, Hillary Morden. I want to hear what Hillary has to say, wants to say, feels is necessary to be said now in our final segment. More from Barry Ulmer, more from our panel as we respond to the uh, the appearance yesterday by Professor Jason Busa on this program for the Canadian Guideline for Opioids for Chronic Non-Cancer Pain. I also haven't understood why. Why is it, why is it non-cancer pain? Pain is pain. And cancer patients are also finding it difficult in some, I don't know, perhaps many cases, to get the uh, opioids, receive the opioids they require or they will tell you they require, from what I understand. We'll come back with our guests on The Green Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I uh, have to read you an email before I go back to my guests. I have to read this email that just arrived. And this... This, to me, is sort of a bottom-line reality check, an explanation of what's going on. I won't mention the name of the person who wrote it, not even the first name, or the person who's suffering, but here's the content. Hello, Roy. I write this as I've just left the Tom Baker Cancer Center in Calgary. The story is about my mother-in-law. She suffered chronic pain for many, many years. She's constantly had to fight to get her medications, sometimes even being prescribed pain meds and having pharmacists refuse to fill the doctor's prescribed medication. It's so sad. Pain patients are treated as though the pain is imagined. She was even told so many times. And instead of pain meds as prescribed antidepressants, she suffered from an autoimmune problem. They simply refused to attempt to control the symptoms. She has been treated with disdain and simply brushed off. Last Monday morning, she was found collapsed on her bathroom floor. Finally, the hospital actually admitted her and thought, get this, that maybe something else is wrong. She was finally given an MRI, and what was found was shocking. A cancer has been growing in her spinal column for probably years, but doctors have simply brushed it off as another imagined ache and pain from a chronic pain patient. I reiterate... I do not believe doctors have even looked further for an existing pain because they simply did not believe her. The cancer was growing up her spinal column until it finally fractured her spine. The same has happened in her pelvis. The strongest pain med she's ever been able to access has been Tylenol 3s. For an ignored cancer pain because she was treated as a chronic pain patient whose pain is not real, well, it is real. And now this family is going to lose its matriarch. We were given weeks or months, not years, that we have left with her. Perhaps if three years ago when she started to complain about these pains, perhaps then she could have been saved. This is a sad state that pain management has reached. We now ignore the chief complaint as imagined. Let me go back to my uh, my guests. Hilary Morton, who is... Uh, Simon Fraser University, she's a Ph.D. candidate in criminology. She's also a chronic pain patient, entrepreneur. Hillary, that, that, that email just breaks your heart. Uh, and, 
It's so typical, and they even put it in the guidelines. Somatic pain is not to be treated by opioids. The problem is, is most somatic pains are just diseases that the doctor has yet to diagnose. And so what you get is typical groups of people who are shunted aside and are told their pain is somatic, women, seniors, children, and teenagers, and young adults. They are also the groups most likely to experience ill health, cancers, other diseases. My own disease, it took them over two years. You know, I have more than a dozen doctors, seven specialists to finally diagnose me. And in that whole time, same thing. No pain meds, nothing. There's just so many problems with these guidelines and I think the essential foundation of the guidelines is where they went wrong is they started from addiction instead of pain and by looking at chronic pain as an addiction problem they applied a moral um, worldview to it and in morality we're all supposed to just suck it up and suffer in silence they tortured that woman they tortured her for years, and now they're killing her because of this. It's appalling. It's criminal, actually, is what it is. It's criminal. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's, there's just... They, they're, it's approached from the perspective that the patient is a liar. Mm-hmm. And it begins there if you have any disease that is an orphan disease or lesser known. And let's face facts. Look, the average doctor gets 17 hours of pain education when in there in medical school, unless they're a pain specialist. Vets get over 100. So it just goes to show you how important they think pain is. They don't see it as important. But pain is generally the first indication that something is going wrong with us. It's the body's... It's the body's signaling mechanism. It is. It is. And I do agree we shouldn't just cover it up with pain meds from the get-go, but we shouldn't also just push people aside and say, oh, well, yeah. it's all in their head. Barry and Elmer. we've done that forever. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's all right. Sorry. Barry Elmer, are there more stories like the one I just read? Are you familiar with, aware of more stories oh. like that one? Roy, I just wouldn't believe it. You know, my heart goes out to that family. That is just plain criminal. It is. And medicine has, has has abandoned these people. But there are more stories oh. that your association like that one that you're absolutely. aware of. Absolutely. It's criminal. Uh, Dawn Ray? You know, Roy, I want everybody to realize something here. It was it was the one real big surprise in uh, Jason Buss's uh, uh, answers to my 38 questions, which took him two months to send me. I'm kind of horrified by it. Apparently, McMaster, the steering committee of the new Canadian guideline at McMaster, including David Yearling, has an ongoing contract to renew these guidelines every five years. I asked Dr. Blissa why we needed a new guideline. The 2010 guideline seemed perfectly adequate. Uh, and he, he answered by saying, we have a contract with Health Canada that says that we will renew and revisit these guidelines every five years. So we haven't seen anything yet. No, There's he said something similar to me. He said something similar to me. Right. That it's every five years or so that you're That's going to right. get this. They, they have tenure on this. Yeah. They will be in control from now until eternity, I guess. Well, I have and about I have about 45 seconds left. Barry, some uh, final thoughts from you. 
Well, I think these people have been able to conflate and and. No, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm I'm I'm, I'm I, I have to go to um, to Marvin. I'm sorry, Marvin. No, good. Yeah, no, that's okay. Uh, I asked you see a similar question. Uh, why do we need new guidelines when the 2010 are perfectly adequate? And he said there's been a lot more research since then, which I think is BS, if I may say that. Uh, they didn't even cite the. Uh, a Cochrane meta-analysis that showed mm-hmm. that opioids, in fact, are beneficial for people with chronic pain with uh, an addiction rate of about 0.27, and mm-hmm. that was done in 2010 okay. involving 5,000 patients. All right. Barry Ulmer, Hillary Morton, Marvin Ross, Don Ray Downton, thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time. Um, particularly with Don Ray and Hillary, who are, who are living with the... Uh, with chronic pain as uh, their constant companion. There's a lot to be done, a lot of questions to be answered, and I hope more people start asking the most relevant question. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. You and I have been listening to, we've been watching, we've been touched by uh, and affected by what's going on in Houston as those people have, uh, in that city, the fourth largest city of the United States, have, su- have suffered and continue to suffer because of Hurricane Harvey. Unusual hurricane that um, hit the coast and then went back out to sea and came back in, and you know, you know the story. But we've also seen video of volunteers with boats, and volunteers who just did whatever they could to save people, to save lives, to help people get away from the water, to just provide them with an opportunity to escape the deluge. And they became known as the Cajun Navy. So last night I was going through some stuff at home and thinking about what I would talk about on the show today and in this hour particularly. And I came across a post that has gone viral online, and it's from uh, conservativereview.com, and it has to do with, well, let me just tell you what the headline is. This viral post captures Houston hero so perfectly you will cry. So I read this, and I I thought, "I, I have to. I have to share it with you today, because it's become so convenient to look at these people who are the heroes and see them as caricatures. So have a, have a listen, and this, is, this was written by Chris Pandolfo of theconservativereview.com. A viral Facebook post making the rounds on social media asks readers to pause and reflect on the unsung heroic men of Houston, Texas in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey's devastation. Let this sink in for a minute. Hundreds and hundreds of small boats pulled by countless pickups and SUVs from across the south are headed for Houston. Almost all of them driven by men, Cayman Sarton posted on Friday. They're using their own property, sacrificing their own time, spending their own money and risking their own lives for one reason, to help total strangers in desperate need. The volunteer response to help rescue people from the flooding is by all accounts overwhelming. 
ordinary people set out in boats and kayaks, even refrigerators, braving hazardous conditions to try to save lives. Thousands have signed up to volunteer, with Red Cross and other disaster relief organizations. Donations are pouring in. The Cajun Navy deployed. Most of them are by themselves, Sardin's Post continues. Most are dressed like the redneck duck hunters and bass fishermen they are. Many are veterans. Most are wearing well-used gimme hats, T-shirts, and jeans. And there's a preponderance of camo. Most are probably gun owners and most probably voted for Trump. Individual Americans didn't wait for the government to come to help people before seeing a need and rising to the occasion. These are the people the left loves to hate, the ones Maddow mocks, the ones Marr and Oberman just know they're so much better than, says the Post. These are the quiet ones. They don't wear masks and tear down statues. They don't, as a rule, march and demonstrate. But they'll spend the next several days wading in cold, dirty water, dodging gators and water moccasins and fire ants, eating whatever meager rations are available, and sleeping whenever they can in dirty, damp clothes. Their reward is the tears and the hugs and the smiles from the terrified people they help. They'll deliver one boatload and then go back for more. An estimated 779,000 Texans and other 7,000 Louisianans were forced to evacuate their homes as Harvey dumped 24.5 trillion gallons of water on both states. About 200,000 households are without power in Texas, another 11,000 in Louisiana. Recovery will take years, and American men will be there to help through it. When disaster strikes, it's what men do, real men, heroic men, American men, and then they'll knock back a few shots or a few beers and with like-minded men they've never met before and talk about fish or ten-point bucks or the benefits of hollow-point ammo or their F-150. And the next time they hear someone talk about the patriarchy or male privilege, they'll snort, turn off the TV, and go to bed. In the meantime, they'll likely be up again before dawn to do it again until the helpless are rescued and the work's done. They're unlikely to be reimbursed. There won't be any medals. They won't care. They're heroes. And it's what they do. So, I was just thinking about so many times, so many times over the last years, I've been frustrated, I've been annoyed, I've been angered, I've been disappointed at the caricatures and the um, the mean-spiritedness that's been directed toward men. We're targets of convenience. And, And we don't complain. We just let it go on. We should complain, but we don't. It's not what we do. But whether it's Houston, Texas... whether it's in uh, New Orleans, whether it's flooding in Calgary, whether it's forest fires in Alberta or British Columbia, guys will step up. And I just want to say that I'm proud of these men because they remind me of how I feel about life. 
They remind me about what we're supposed to be as, as men. Who we're supposed to be. The actions we're supposed to take. And I know there'll be people who'll say, well, he's being, you attach whatever level you, uh, label you want. It doesn't matter. There is something in, innately this part of the DNA of decent men, of good men, that makes us want to stand up and help when somebody needs it. Now, on the other side of the equation, there was a guy by the name of Kenneth L. Story. Mr. Story is a visiting professor of sociology at the University of Tampa. Professor Story decided to tweet this. I don't believe in instant karma, but this kind of feels like it for Texas. Hopefully this will help them realize the GOP doesn't care about them. Instant karma for Texas, Hurricane Harvey, wrote Professor Story. Thank you, Professor. He got fired, by the way. Slate Magazine wrote an article with the headline, Houston Doesn't Showcase America at Its Best. They got hammered, and they had to retitle it. There was a cartoon that was run um, in Politico, which showed a, looks like a military helicopter and a, a Wild West cowboy in a rescue basket. Saying angels sent by God, and beside them, beside him is a, looks like a, a raft of some kind, in which it says secede. And uh, the caption from one of the people on the raft is, are actually Coast Guard sent by the government, not angels sent by God. Politico deleted the tweet of the cartoon after a wave of angry backlash. And then there were the morons who went after the shoes of Melania Trump, and you could line all of them up. Magazine after website. Oh, she was wearing heels. How inappropriate. This article goes on to say, except she didn't. As Stephen Miller pointed out for Fox News, the First Lady walked about 200 feet from the White House portico to Marine One, the helicopter in those shoes, and it inspired an 890-word article in Politico criticizing her footwear. Of course, when the uh, president and the first lady arrived in Texas, Melania had changed into appropriate footwear, rendering articles at Slate, The Daily Beast, The New York Times, and Vanity Fair, and countless moronic hot takes on Twitter irrelevant. So, what you hear now is me throwing those comments into the trash, and I'll hang on to this this piece about the real men, about the Cajun Navy. Kind of makes me feel like, you know what? Make me feel like it was a sort of a mini Dunkirk. My number is 800-263-2428. 1-800-263-2428. I don't know what you want to say. Maybe nothing. Maybe something. But there are good guys. Lots of good guys. And I'm proud of these good guys who did what they did in in Houston. And there were Canadians among them. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.